Um, well, very good morning to you all. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Alex. I've been part of Hope City since last summer with my wife, Katrina. Um, we have a four-month-old Hamish who is bravely spending his second morning in the crash. So may I send my thanks and apologies in advance to those <laughs> looking after him. So I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about power. Um, when I was 12, uh, my two ta favorite TV shows were EastEnders and WWE, <laughs> or Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment, and I don't have a particularly good excuse for why this was the case. Um, but there was a very memorable moment from WWE that always sticks in my mind, where my favorite wrestler at the time, John Cena, was up against the seven-foot-tall, 500-pound Big Show, and late in the fight, they'd been scrapping away, and he delivers his finishing move. He lifts him up on his shoulders and powerfully slams him down into the canvas. Ding, 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 the knockout blow. Um, it may be, um, some, uh, may be something else. I've enjoyed the spike in the number of rugby tops that have been appearing in recent Sundays in honor of the Rugby World Cup, and wasn't it a spectacular victory for Scotland last night? And rugby is a sport that is all about power, power in the scrum, power in the tackle, power in running, and the more powerful team, usually South Africa, but this time possibly <laughs> Ireland usually tend to come out on top. Or it might be something completely different. It may be an authority of some kind. We have a wonderful international congregation here at Hope City, many of whom would have come up against the challenges of getting through visas and immigration encountered officials who seem to have enormous power over our futures. Um, today we are going to look at a power struggle as old as time, the fight between good and evil. Um, we are picking up our series this morning in the book of Matthew. Jesus, in an attempt to withdraw from the crowds that have gathered after the Sermon on the Mount and his miracles, have hopped into a boat and traveled across the lake. It has been far from a relaxing journey so far with the almighty storm which hit them last week. Um, and now as they arrive on the far side of the lake, just ready for a bit of rest, relaxation, as they step off the boat onto dry land, they are met by two demon-possessed men. And what follows is a dramatic encounter between good and evil. So we are in um, Matthew chapter 8, verse is 28 to 34, which is page number 973 in the Blue Church Bibles. And my wife, Katrina, is going to come and read for us this morning. And this is genuinely a coincidence. I think this was Twinkle's <laughs> master, master plan. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. 
Lovely, thank you, um, Katrina. Um, so, we are going to look at the passage this morning in two chunks. Firstly, we're going to look at the interaction between Jesus and these two demon-possessed men. And secondly, we'll look at the reaction to the local people to Jesus. We've got two main points which are up on screen. Um, and the first one which we're going to look at, focusing on the interaction between Jesus and the two demon-possessed men, is Jesus is terrifyingly powerful, but he is good. I'm going to keep with the theme of alliteration. I'm going to do my best. Um, so imagine you are walking home from school or from work. You've just got off um, the train. You've picked up some groceries on your way home, and you take a shortcut through the local cemetery. It's now October, so it's getting dark. You're walking past a few gravestones, and you're about halfway through when suddenly you hear a shriek. And out of the shadows come rushing at you two wild-looking men. You're stopped dead in your tracks. You let out your own high-pitched scream. You drop your groceries and turn around and run. Apologies for those who like to take shortcuts through cemeteries. Perhaps you might take a different route um, next week. Um, but I think this gives a sense of just how terrifying these men would have been to the local town's people. Perhaps these men, once upon a time, have been part of their community. But something has happened. They are no longer in their right minds. They live as outcasts in the tombs. And we are told that they are so violent that no one could pass by them. What is the reason for this? Well, we are told it is because they are demon-possessed. Now, what is going on in, with demon possession? What do we know about it from the Bible? Well, in the book of Revelation, demons are described as fallen angels, who along with their leader, Satan, have rebelled against God, and they live as his enemies. Elsewhere in the Gospels, they are referred to as evil spirits who have the power to take possession of a person's body, as we see in this story. But as we read through the Bible from the start and work our way through the Old Testament, there is only the very occasional reference to them. But then suddenly we, we reach the Gospels and they seem to be everywhere. Why all of a sudden have they become so visible? Well, I think the reason must be is it's because Jesus, the Son of God, has arrived on the scene. And the demons, along with Satan, their enemies is primarily God first and human second. And so now as their great enemy has arrived, the battle between good and evil has really heated up. I wonder if you've noticed the number of references to this in the book of Matthew. These are the number of times, just in Matthew alone, where there are references to um, Jesus driving out demons or evil spirits. Um, Matthew tells us later in chapter 12 that the driving out of demons is a sign that the kingdom of God is coming. And the forces are doing everything they can to fight against this. And, but as we read the descriptions of Jesus driving out demons, one thing that becomes very apparent is there is no magic technique or formula involved. There are no elaborate rituals or ceremonies that we see in the movies. No, with Jesus, it is far more simple. He drives out these spirits with a single word. Such is his authority over them. So we're going to take a closer look at the dialogue, the interaction between Jesus and the two demon-possessed men. And the first words they speak to Jesus in verse 29, it says, They shout at him, What do you want with us, Son of God? Now, in the scene just prior, where Jesus has calmed the storms, the disciples say to Jesus, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They don't know who he is. None of the disciples do. And it is not going to be later in chapter 14, where Peter becomes the first disciple to become 
to come to the realization that Jesus is God. But the demons, on the other hand, immediately recognize Jesus for who he is, here identifying him as the son of God. But perhaps this isn't really surprising, for Jesus is their great enemy, and they seem to be terrified of him. And I think this fear comes from the fact because they recognize that as the son of God, he is far more powerful than they are. They sound increasingly despairing, and they go on to say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, what are they referring to here? Well, it seems to be that the demons are aware that there is a time coming where their reign of terror and destruction will come to an end. And they are terrified that this time has come early, that it has come now. And what is this appointed time they are fearful of? Well, it seems to be judgment day. And we see in Revelation why they are quite so terrified of this day. And we get this very vivid picture of the devil and presumably the demons along with him being thrown into a lake of burning sulfur and tormented day and night forever and ever. No wonder they are quivering when they meet Jesus. They are terrified that this time has come. And it becomes quickly apparent to us when we read this that this isn't a fight between two equals. No, it is clear where the real power and authority lays. So the frantic talking conti continues. And notice at this point, Jesus has still not said a word. The next words they say is this time, they beg Jesus, if you, if you send us out, send us into the herd of pigs who are minding their own business, feeding on a hillside some distance away. Why do the demons want to go into the pigs? Well, one thing we learn later in Matthew is that the demons are always looking for a host in order to continue their destruction. We see that after being driven out of a person that they wander through arid places seeking rest, seeking, looking for another host, but not finding it. And so these demons beg Jesus that he might permit them to go into these pigs, that they might have another host to continue their destructive ways. And why pigs? Is it simply a coincidence that they are innocent bystanders caught up in the crossfire? Well, I think there is probably something significant that as we have crossed the lake, we are now firmly in non-Jewish or Gentile territory. And the large herd of pigs is the biggest clue of this. We see back in Leviticus, which is one of the books of the law in the Old Testament, that pigs are unclean animals. Perhaps in some ways they are the representative unclean animal. And this herd of pigs would never have been found in Jewish territory. So perhaps the demons see this as their opportunity that Jesus may grant them as unclean spirits living in these unclean men in the unclean tombs to go into the unclean animals. Let's see. So let's see how Jesus responds to their request. And this is the only word that Jesus is to speak in the whole section. It is as if he has heard enough and he issues a single command, go. It seems so dismissive. It's like you're saying, your time is up. Your time of ruining the lives of these men is over, and I want you gone. And when Jesus, with his power and authority, issues the command, the demons have no choice but to obey. And then we have this quite spectacular scene that follows. Um, the demons, they come out of these two men. They come from the tombs. They travel, travel across the hills to the hillside where the pigs are feeding. And the entire herd is driven into a frenzy. 
such that they rush down the steep bank into the lake where they drown in the water. This would have been quite something to behold. The, the number of pigs is numbered as high as 2,000 in Luke's account of the story. What's going on here? Well, water is sometimes used as um, a representative of God's judgment in the Bible. Think back to the Exodus where the Egyptians had chased, chased the Israelites through the Red Sea in their chariots, hoping to recapture them after letting them go. Um, but after the Israelites crossed through, we see that the water comes and they were all drowned, totally defeated. And I think this story echoes that similar nature of the defeat that the demons had here. Uh, the hand of Jesus was far more powerful than they are. So I think it's important for us to note not just how powerful Jesus is, but the difference between the demons and Jesus in how they use their power. The demons use their power for evil and destruction, how they use them to torment these men, how they cause the death of an entire herd of pigs. But we see Jesus uses his power in a far different way. He uses his for good and for liberation. We have seen already in chapter 8 how he has had, had compassion on a man with leprosy and healed him. How he healed the centurion's servant and so many others who were brought to him. And then last week, how he calmed the storm to reassure his disciples that he was the one who was in control. And now he comes to these men and he delivers them once and for all from the power of evil as he drives out the demons that have tormented them. And at long last, they are in their right mind. I don't think we can imagine the freedom they would have felt. And we, as, we, as we see in Mark and Luke's account, who also tell this story, um, they are in their right mind. But not only that, that they want to follow this man who has rescued him. This man who uses his power for good, and he wants to follow them. And so I think we sometimes talk about the language of spiritual warfare when we talk about this fight between good and evil. And I think this story shows us quite spectacularly that this is not a fight between two evils, exchanging blows, jostling for the upper hand that could go either way. No, hear that quiver in the voice of the demons. They know that the battle is lost and that they will be defeated at the hands of Jesus, who is far more powerful, and not only that, that he is good. And this is a comforting truth for us today, that when we look at the world around us, where we see so much destruction, so much trouble, so much death, and we might wonder, is evil getting the upper hand? But I think this story helps show us that this is not the case. And this is not how the story ends. We will see at the end of Matthew how evil is climatically defeated by Jesus at the cross. And we, unlike the demons, can look forward to that appointed time where evil will be extinguished once and for all. That everything will be made right and we will enjoy the goodness of Jesus forever. There is a famous quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which you may be familiar with, where two of the characters, Lucy and Mr. Beaver, are speaking about Aslan the Lion. Isn't he, isn't he amazing? Um, and, they, and Aslan, who represents Jesus in the story, and this is their little interaction they have, Lucy says, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. And then Mr. Beaver, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
He isn't safe in the safety. A lion isn't safe in his lionness he, because he's extraordinarily powerful. But, and this is the wonderful line, that he is good, that he is the king, and he, the one with the power and authority, is one that we can trust. And so that was our first point. Jesus is terrifyingly powerful, but he is good. We're now going to look at the reaction of the local people who witness all this. And this is our shorter section, just the final two verses, verses 33 and 34. But I think there's something um, really important for us to see here. And our second point is Jesus is totally polarizing, but he is trustworthy. So what do the local people make of Jesus? Well, let's take a look at verses 33 and 34. It says, those tending the pigs ran off. They went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they fell at his feet and worshipped and became his followers. Hang on, let's look at it again. This was my test for how awake you are at this point. That final line wasn't quite right. It says, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region." Usually when Jesus performs a miracle, people, people are desperate to follow him. The crowds gather, they bring him their sick, and perhaps particularly in this case, they're demon-possessed. But this time, the reaction is quite different. Why is this? They plead with him to leave the region. Is this simply fear driving this? Perhaps they, they don't recognize this man who's entered this land shortly after his arrival. An entire herd of pigs has died. And it seems understandable on some level that they want him gone. But we read in verse 33 that they, find they, that they find out all that had happened, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. These two wild men who had terrorized their town, perhaps people who they might have known once upon a time, are now restored. They are now completely, truly in their right minds. And they want to follow this man who has healed them. And so I wonder if the townspeople did indeed catch a glimpse of something quite extraordinary in Jesus, seeing what he had done to these men, how he had rescued them. But despite this, they still want nothing to do with him, and they plead with him to leave. And so they miss out on what would have happened if they had allowed him to stay, how he could have used his power for their good, to heal their sick, to cleanse their unclean of how we could have turned their lives upside down for good also in the same way he had done for these men. And perhaps this was part of the reason why they wanted him to leave. Perhaps they were comfortable with the lives they were, they were living and feared what, what could happen if they allowed Jesus to stay around and turn their lives upside down also. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at, with Peter, the cost of following Jesus. And so perhaps here they saw something of the cost that, would, that they would incur if they followed him. And so I wonder if we, like the townspeople, ever carry any of those same fears. Perhaps we too have caught something extraordinary in Jesus, but we are fearful of life, what life can look like if we decide to follow him. The changes that it would mean to our lives. Or, on the other hand, perhaps we have committed to follow Jesus, but there are parts of our lives which we just hold back under our control out of fear of what life may look like if we fully surrender to him. 
But as we've seen in recent weeks, we can see that we can trust Jesus completely. Because unlike the demons, he uses his power and authority for good. And the reward that comes from following him, both here now on earth and an eternity to come, will be beyond comparison with the cost of following him. The other thing I think we see from the reaction of these townspeople who reject him um, is that, oh sorry, hang on a minute. Um, Yes, and so the difference between the reaction of the townspeople who reject him and the two men who are liberated is one wants to follow Jesus, one wants to reject him. Uh, Jesus seems to be very polarizing in this situation. And we see that rejection becomes part and parcel of Jesus' ministry. But not only for him, it will be part and parcel for the ministry of his followers. Later in, Peter, later in Matthew, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for, for their ministry, he says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Rejection is to be expected for followers of Jesus. But if we choose to, take, to join Jesus in his mission, let us take great comfort that he promises to be with us every step of the way. I wonder if you've ever noticed the words at the end of the Great Commission. And these are, yeah, I just clocked this today. These are the verses that follow that, the, that memory verse we just looked at, that all authority is given to Jesus. And now this is the commission he, he gives to, to his, his disciples. So I'll just read it together um, as, we, as we come to a close. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then that bit of the end, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So as we choose to pick up our cross and follow him, let us rejoice and be comforted that he is with us every step of the way. And when all is done, that good, when God will conquer evil once and for all, that we will spend eternity with him, enjoying him forever. So just to recap at the end, our two main points were he is terrifyingly powerful, but he is good. And then Jesus is totally polarizing, but he is totally trustworthy. And to bring us back to that wonderful quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is really quite memorable and perhaps something we can take into the weeks to come. It says, course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. So we're going to finish our morning together by singing the song, The Lion and the Lamb. That speaks of Jesus as the roaring lion fighting our battles, but also as the lamb who was slain for us. I'm going to invite the band back up for us now. And just as they come up, I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are all-powerful that you have all authority, and that you have triumphed over evil. Help us to see how very good you are, that you love us so much, so much so that you would be slain for us. Thank you for saving us. And we pray that we would have confidence to go all in in following you, trusting that you are good and will be with us every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.